You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 82. And today we're asking the question, why do we audit so much? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, today's question was inspired by an email from a listener about safety culture certification. And we know that there's been a safety culture auditing regime of such, uh, particularly in the nuclear industry, for a long time. We joked on one of our earlier podcasts about the potential to see this rise of safety to or safety differently auditing and certification. And so do you think you could maybe say a little bit about the issues that were raised in this email and straight off the bat, some of your own thoughts about about this? Uh, Sure, David. So so I guess whenever I see things like that, I just start out immediately ultra frustrated. And I went through that whole cycle with this email where I, I don't think the person sending the email was particularly sympathetic to the idea of doing the audits, but they were they were sort of like asking questions about, you know, what is the value of it and what's the effect of it? And I'm just starting off thinking, no, this whole thing is nonsense. You know, if you understand anything about safety culture, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with the theory, you shouldn't be auditing it. It just literally makes no sense. And I have to sort of like tamp down those ideas of frustration because obviously it does make sense. <laughs> you know, it makes sense somehow to someone. And that's really fascinating. You know, how does it get to the point where it makes sense to the person who's asking you to do an audit? It makes sense to the person who does the audit. It makes sense to the people who put up with the audits. Even though it doesn't make sense according to any theory about how safety culture is meant to work. And I think that's that that problem of things that people do that seem to be just crazy is one of the most interesting things in sociology. Just understanding how people do to themselves things that they complain about, they gripe about it, but they're the ones responsible for taking on the work and for doing the work. Um, and there, there's two sort of massive authors in this space. Uh, there's James Scott, who wrote the book Seeing Like a State, and Michael Power, who I think is probably most famous for his book, The Audit Society. And today we're going to look at some work by um, Michael Power in this space. And should you, I think at one level, it would be easier for our listeners and, and for me at least to go, well, auditing makes rational sense. So like this process of checking that things are working, that things are accurate, that things are reliable and, and, and as we expect them to be, it just seems like a rational thing to do. So if we want to have it, even in this question, if we want to have a, a safety culture, surely it makes sense to have some sort of auditing and certification process to check if that's what we're actually, that's what we've got. But as we'll learn today is that, um, you know, auditing itself and particularly anything involving groups of people, sometimes things that could be rational uh, become very irrational very very quickly. So Drew, do you want to sort of introduce, let's, I think we should go straight into the paper. This is an amazing paper and you can actually get it uh, just with a Google Scholar search. So we'll actually drop in the comments of this episode, the link to that, because both Drew and I, I think when we we're getting ready to record this, go, gee, we wish we had have left ourselves a few more days to read through this paper. It's actually 
um, a really, really good piece of work. So, Drew, do you want to introduce introduce the paper? Sure. Uh, so the author of the paper is called Michael Power. And anytime you look up Michael Power, you'll see his work about the Audit Society. He's been writing about auditing and why we audit for a good 20 years now. And in fact, until David found it, I wasn't aware of this most recent paper. Uh, it's in the journal called the Academy of Management Review, which is a very creditable journal. And the title is Modeling the Micro Foundations of the Audit Society, Organizations and the Logic of the Audit Trail. So a bit of a mouthful in the title. Um, I think the Audit Society was a little bit catchier, uh, but the paper really does what it says in the title, which is it's a paper about theoretically modeling the way the processes behind a fairly common idea works. So this is not an ethnography. There's no data. There's no interviews or observations or case studies. It's just based off both literature that's already described some of these things happening and just common understanding. You know, Pretty much everyone who reads the paper or reviews the paper or thinks about the paper will be working within an organization. So we'll have experienced some of the things that Power is trying to explain through the model that he's producing. Uh, so we hope as you go through this that you'll recognize some of these processes that he's talking about as things that you see happening, or at least will believe are underlying some of the things that you see happening in your own organization. So Drew, for example, like the introduction to this paper says sort of, and I quote, organizations now provide reports on their performance regarding diversity, sustainability, quality, security, data quality, customer satisfaction, employee engagement, and many other values. Now, there's no citation for this claim and, and no data, but it's something that we all know to be true about the world. And in that way, Drew, many things, and, and this paper was written, obviously, Power's work goes back 20, 25 years on, on this topic and, and perhaps longer. But it was very similar in a very similar time when we were writing about safety work versus the safety of work. And I think this style of paper is a little bit similar to the style of paper that we wrote when we wrote that paper. So, Drew, when, when we start trying to sort of what Power's doing with all of his work is make sense of the world. So in that title of the paper, what he's saying is, what is the organization logic behind having all this auditing activity? So there's definitely some things that need to be explained by whatever Michael Power says in this in this, uh, in this this paper. So do you want to talk through what needs to be explained? What are we trying to explain? Okay, so, so I guess the starting point, which he takes to be quite obvious, is just that lots of auditing happens. Audits not just are growing in the number of them that we do, but the scope of the types of things that we are conducting audits for seems to be growing. You know, things that previously we didn't audit, we now audit. And by audit here, and he doesn't explain in this paper, but he says elsewhere, the term audit doesn't mean strictly just something that is done by an auditor. There are other things that form this same basic process that we'll go into a bit later that you can sort of like see, clearly see the pattern happens in other organizational systems other than audits. But this growth in audits happens despite the fact that there's lots of very well documented problems with audits. And so he goes through basically five big things that get, and each one of these expands out into an entire body of literature. They're not controversial claims. The first one is a, what he calls a goal and attention displacement from core work to peripheral work. 
So people focus on doing the audits and doing the administration instead of doing the operational work. Andrew, then the next one is about how the the this elevation of process over outcome. So we 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 audit a process as opposed to auditing an outcome, and and this sort of reminded me directly of this safety work versus the safety of work. We can see and feel and check the safety work, but we can't necessarily you know audit uh, the safety of the work, the outcome. We see that even though audits are supposed to increase efficiency, that in fact they decrease efficiency through increased bureaucracy. So audits clearly require extra work, which is clearly overhead work. It's not work that is fundamentally achieving the goals of the organization. And sometimes that is a huge expense that we take on. Um, David, I know you've made comments before about your previous roles about self-insurance and how the economics of that doesn't stack up once you start factoring in the cost of doing the audits necessary for self-insurance. Yeah, absolutely. The compliance effort is, uh, is significant. And the fourth is this declining trust in professional judgment. So we we put we put faith in in the audit the auditing itself, and and we we take our trust in that process more so than our trust in individual professional judgment. And, and perhaps related to that is then for the professionals themselves a crisis of professional purpose. What are they doing? If they're not being trusted, if they're not getting to apply their judgment, if they're not getting to achieve the values that they achieve. They find themselves just managing systems and operating systems instead of doing the core functions that they care about. So, Drew, I think those five things that we just mentioned there, people will see themselves in that. I mean, I saw myself in in those things about process over outcome bureaucracy, this um, declining trust in professional advice. And so yet the seemingly dysfunctional practices of, of these things and, and particularly the contribution of auditing to uh, creating this sort of uh, environment or these pressures in organisations that are creating these uh, these things that we've mentioned, the auditing persists. And in many cases, it's being amplified. Um, and taking back to the question here is, should we take it even further in audit culture or all of these other things that we mentioned that organisations report on? So how does this paradox work? If if we know that it's creating these things, yet we, we double down on this path? Well, I imagine our listeners have already got some ideas themselves about why we still audit. And in the literature, it basically boils down to two overall theories. The first one is that audits play a role in the in the sort of like neoliberal governance framework. So when we talk about values such as control and accountability and good governance, due diligence, then audits play a sort of central role in that. So that's a sort of like top-down theory that says we audit because other people make us audit. And then there's a bottom-up theory which says that we adopt these sort of practices because of their legitimizing and symbolic power, because they sort of embody myths that we tell us about ourselves and about the way we operate as organizations. And so power sort of like just cites the existing literature and says, we've got these two explanations, but they can't possibly be enough because they still don't explain the why. Why do people make us do it? Why do we keep in place these symbolic and legitimizing ideas if they're genuinely ineffective. Even symbols and values that are powerful still very quickly lose that power normally if that's an unhelpful sense-making. If it leads us into unproductive things, then we tend to give up our symbols and give up our false beliefs. But that's not happening with audits. So he says we need a model that explains why something can have so many negative effects and be so ineffective compared to what it says it does 
And yet we don't just keep it, but we tell ourselves myths and stories and processes that help us keep it and help it expand. What's the underlying engine that is driving that creation of a need for more audits? Andrew, what I liked about his framing for his model, he said that there's lots of these ideas tell us uh, broadly at a macro level why things might make sense, but they don't explain why an organisation, a seemingly autonomous organisation, would continue to do this to to itself. So that's where he was he was sort of saying that these theories let us down when we look at an individual organisation, which is why he talked in the title of this paper about the micro foundations. What's the individual or the single organisational logic behind keeping this and so his explanation is to describe a model of audits true that in your words sort of sound a lot like an organizational virus so i love the way you like to characterize uh some of these these models and i'll just quote here that via repeated enactment this logic of the audit trail is strongly performative of the conditions of its persistence and amplification by forming the disposition of organizational actors to reproduce refine and expand it in new settings so it's kind of like, Drew, doing audits create the conditions in the organisation that make people in the organisation want to do more audits, quite you know, seemingly perversely when we get to the end of this, this episode. So, so auditing, you know, I think if we go back, you know, where, where did audit start? It sort of audit started with producing a set of company accounts. I think, I think our modern form of auditing sort of comes out of accounting. So, Drew, do you want to just take us back and start us with, with maybe some of those origins and what we can understand by understanding those origins. Okay, so so the basic idea of accounting, and actually I'm not an accountant, I don't know how accountants think, but this is the way sociologists talk about accounting, is that it's the idea of creating representations of performance that you can then literally count. So we take some sort of underlying thing that we value, we put on top of that some sort of representation that we can measure, and then we measure the thing that we can represent. And Power says it's been well understood in sociology of accounting for a long time that those representations very quickly take on a life of their own. Um, in his words, it constructs the reality or facticity of performance. So, you know, they go from being representations to becoming facts, becoming real things. Um, so if we think about this in terms of safety, Something like lost time injuries aren't just a representation of the safety that we care about. They start like that, but then they become their own thing that needs to be managed. We still have to manage safety, but we also need to manage LTIs. And it can get to the point where we take for granted that it's worthwhile to reduce LTIs, even if that has no impact on safety, just because LTIs are the reality now that we need to manage, that we get judged by, feed into other systems and abstractions. Yeah, maybe LTIs. I was just thinking when you said that, then, Drew, I think LTIs may be like tax, where, you know, tax, you know, there's a law that says, you know, if your sole purpose for making a decision in your organisation is to to avoid tax, then it's, you know, it's an illegal decision and maybe we should do the same for LTIs. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it does sound almost corrupt, but that's literally what happens with everything else we do in accounting. Right. Instead of talking about the like value of the organization, we talk about the share price. Um, things like profits and losses are paper representations of what's actually coming in and out of the organization. Things like headcount are abstractions of the people that are there and the actual cost of the people that are there. But they all have a management reality. 
And you, you can look at it and manage an organization without ever touching any of the stuff that happens underneath. You can just do it entirely on the balance books because they have their own reality. And the reason for that, the thing that gives it its power, is that there are economic theories that tell us that that way of viewing an organization makes sense. And so those aren't like just neutral representations. They're representations that bring in lots and lots of theory about how economies and economics work. And the same thing happens with any sort of metric. Uh, David, I've built into my little notes here a little bit of a rant about academia, if you don't mind if I go down the rabbit hole for a moment as illustration. Absolutely, Drew. Use the podcast for your own advocacy. Fantastic. So one of the things that we care about in academia are publication metrics. How many papers we publish, how much those papers get cited. Now, there are really good arguments that those are terrible ways of actually measuring research quality. But that's beside the point. Once universities start collecting publication metrics and they start using them in decision making for things like promotions and grants and who gets fired during a recession, then publications become valuable because they get used for those purposes. So the fact that they're being measured and monitored makes them important. So whether or not you start off believing that publications are a good measure, you have to believe they're a good measure. You have to manage them. You have to train other people to manage them. You have to supervise other people in ways of managing them. And then if you get successful, then the last thing you want to do is change the system and burn it all down and find a new way of measuring. Because then all of your previous work to have good publication metrics would just go up in smoke. And that's the same thing that happens with any metric that gets used in accounting. So Drew, then the, the strategy the strategy for you then must be to not do any original research at all, just do good quality literature reviews of popular topics. That is indeed one of the strategies that does get used, yes. <laughs> Very good. Uh, just for people following along, that you know, if it's about citations, then writing good literature reviews is a good way of getting people to reference your material in the introductions of their papers. Very good. So Drew, organizations then, so so we've got these audits inside our organizations. We'll talk a bit about the process and, and describe Power's model for how this plays out in organizations, but organizations need to make themselves then audit ready. So, you know, organizations over time need to be able to actually conduct and and um, and provide what, what audits need. And also employees themselves need to become auditable subjects. So we need to be able to check on the work of individuals. So what does this mean, Drew, if we've got it like, because if we want to do audits, then our organizations and our people need to be able to be audited. So, so essentially what it means is that we're setting up our organizations with the types of systems and structures that can be observed and inspected and evaluated. There's a sort of key concept that gets used in this paper, the idea of an audit trace that we will get into a bit further down in our discussion. But David, if you don't mind, I might just jump to talk a little bit about the audit society and where sort of Power's original thinking comes from, because I think once we've talked about that, it'll be easy to talk about some of the other things. Yeah, let's do that. Good move. So the basic idea in the audit society is that there's been an explosion in the amount of auditing and performance measurement throughout the 80s and 90s. And it's particularly happened in public sector management. But I think it's fair to say that since that time, it's happened everywhere, that large organisations tend to operate now in the same way that public sector management used to operate. And the Powers explanation is that the cause of this is that there's a neoliberal bundle of myths about good governance. Now, I think that myths is kind of how most academics talk about neoliberalism. 
I don't think it's entirely fair, but I think a more neutral version would be that there's a particular set of values that get prioritised. Um, and those values power lists out as transparency, efficiency, responsibility, auditability, and accountability. And for most people, I think you'd say, yeah, that sounds like a reasonable set of values for public sector governance. But the thing to note is that none of those values is about effectiveness or about serving the needs of the people who need those services. And so that's where the neoliberal bit comes in. Because to believe that those are good values, you've got to believe that if you have those things, then market forces will take care of the rest. That you set in place the transparency, the auditability, the repeatability, the responsibility, and that leads to good government, not just good governance. But the risk is that the market forces don't quite work like that. Decisions start to be seen as good because they're made in the right way, using the right processes, the right records, not because they're actually the right decision. So this is a decoupling of the goal of your process and the fact that you've done the process. And so that's why the audit society is often seen as in sort of like contrast to professional logics. Your professional values are very much about making the right decision, even at the expense of transparency, auditability, and accountability. You want your doctor to be telling you the right, the most useful thing for you, not for them to be covering their back with the audit systems. But the audit system says it the other way, is make them accountable and they will make the right decision. Yeah, Drew, I think just as you mentioned the professional values there, I was thinking of the Hippocratic Oath, like, you know, first do no harm and, and you know, that sort of says enough. And But you're right. If we then worry about how other people are going to view our decision, then maybe that becomes more important than than the outcome itself. So, you know, individuals may end up asking themselves the question of, you know, what decision, you know, can I justify versus maybe what is the the best decision or the or the even the right decision to make here? And to give neoliberalism its credit, I think most people who believe in it genuinely believe that in the long run having those sort of accountability processes are what creates the good decision-making. You know, they genuinely believe that if a doctor thinks through, how am I going to explain this decision to the review board, that they will make better decisions than if they just focus on the patient in front of them. But there is a fair wealth of evidence that suggests that that's not the case, that when you have these systems, you do end up having a decoupling, that you end up having prioritising the processes rather than prioritising the right outcomes. And I think we've seen in the last couple of years, Drew, you know, those big controversies in the technology sector around data privacy and so on, as well as some, you know, big issues in in the finance sector, you know, involving things like even in Australia, like Royal Commissions. So I think it's it's clear that maybe maybe some of those assumptions aren't quite what plays out in reality. And and maybe the rest of this discussion that we'll have on this podcast will kind of explain why uh why it plays out the way that it does. Yep. So so let's leap into the foundations of what makes up an audit trail. Um, now, most of this will probably be fairly familiar to our listeners, but I think it's just useful the way Power explains how it all fits together and what the conclusions are we can draw from it. So there's a few sort of like fundamental things that you need to have the ability to audit things. The first one is that you can only audit things that have documents. So you've got to have the creation of documents and records at the heart of any system that does audits. 
And often those things won't previously exist. They will only start to be created for the purpose of having the audit. The second thing is you've got an idea that transparency and traceability are the same thing and are important. So we've taken the value of transparency and we've turned it into the practice of being able to link each step in a chain to the next and previous step in the chain. And that's the way an audit trail works, is you take a particular document and you say, how does this link to the next document? How does this match the next document? And you can like follow through from this as work processes get transformed from lower levels in the organization to higher or across supply chains. And then the final thing is the process, which is that we end up having to produce accounts of our performance. Those start off by individuals having to produce primary data, traces of the work that they're doing. So even if their work isn't on paper, they need to produce a piece of paper that keeps a trace of what they did. We then have to have systems in the company that aggregate those traces into more and more abstract forms in a way that auditors can check each step until eventually we report it up to the top of the organization. And so, Drew, if we combine a couple of those components of the audit trail, so the first is this primary traces of performance, like you said, these documents, these checklists, these artifacts. So, you know, the audit trail demands the production of these these things. But these things kind of reduce complexity and they become systemic and standardized representations of the way that work actually happens. But it has to be like that so that the audit can first identify it and then aggregate it all together. And the audit process needs to do that. It needs to, it needs to aggregate you know, multiple pieces of these primary data. And then it has to produce a performance account. So the audit actually needs to, needs to deliver a result, if you like. So all of these primary traces of performance have to be systematically aggregated to an organizational level account. So this is where we produce a ranking or a rating like satisfactory or unsatisfactory or green or red. So we've got these primary traces of performance, and then we've got the audit, which produces a kind of a result or an account of what's going on. So these two things together kind of create this sequential logic of the audit trail. If we've got these primary documents, then we can create this, um, this outcome that we can then you know, use to make sense of in the world as managers. So we can think of this almost as the difference between quantitative and qualitative research. When you're doing qualitative research, you can treat each individual thing as its own thing. You can be agnostic as to what counts as data. You can go and look at things. You can go and observe them. You can talk to people. You can check records. When you're creating an audible system, everything needs to be standardized to the extent that you can count it. And so that ability to count and check means that things need to be reduced to quite simple requirements that can be marked as either true or false or yes or no, or you're literally counted up to produce a higher level number. David, there's a quote I want to throw in here just directly, because I think it's kind of sums up a lot of the rest of what's in the paper. Uh, he says, understood as a type, the process logic of the audit trail seems to lack any specific content or performance value other than the imperative to produce performance accounts in accordance with the requirements of making performance traceable to primary performance data. So he's saying, you know, the whole purpose of this is not to produce value for the organization. You, we don't audit as a value creating activity. We audit as an activity to produce performance accounts. Um, so that's why, for example, we do inductions by PowerPoint and risk assessment using checklists. 
not because PowerPoint and checklists have performance values. They may in fact be worse than other ways of doing it, but they create primary performance data. They create a trace of what you're doing in a way that other ways of doing those same activities don't. And an audit system requires you to be producing those frontline traces and to be producing them in a form which can be easily aggregated. So that's a challenge we make whenever we want to reform safety activities, whenever we want to get rid of clutter, whenever we want to make things more effective, is if we break the ability to audit the activity, then that's an unacceptable change inside an audit system. So Drew, let's talk about the process model of an audit trail where, where Power talks about how um, organisations take up this this these audits and then they 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 grow and perpetuate and and continue so first of all you've got this adoption of an audit process itself and so maybe let's use this example that we've used in in um from this email about say we decide that it might be a good idea to do culture audits we adopt this idea of culture audits now the first time we do these culture audits no one's got any of this primary data that we actually need and and we can't produce this really meaningful account and we probably get these these quite poor results or or difficult outcomes for the organization to deal with because our organization is not audit ready to be audited around safety culture and the individuals within the business aren't auditable subjects we we have no way of counting and checking and documenting that behavior that would match our our audit criteria but we adopt it nevertheless so we increase the repetition and the routinization of the primary trace production. So we know that the second time we're going to be audited, we're going to be asked for these things and these questions and these documents. So we actually, we pay little attention to actually creating a safety culture, but we may, we pay a lot of attention to what do we need to be able to produce for the audit trail next time we need to do the audit. So it's about, you know, how can we represent our world as opposed to what can we do about our world? And then the more that the facticity, and I love that word, I'm going to use that in a sentence sort of each week, the more the facticity of these performance accounts, which is like satisfactory or unsatisfactory, they exert a really strong influence over the powerful actors in the organisation. And so, you know, these we become less reflexive about what's going on in terms of this value subversion. So we stop worrying about are we genuinely creating a safety culture in our business? And we worry more about What's the rating that's coming out of these audits in terms of the safety culture? So we focus on the representation of the world as opposed to the underlying world itself. So in that way, we don't, we don't need this regulatory push to do audits anymore because we've got this really simplified view of the world that we can use to see whether we are getting better ratings. I was going to say better or worse, but getting better ratings or, or worse ratings and this whole cycle kind of reproduces itself and the organization draws conclusions from that and nothing has actually changed in the underlying reality of the organization other than its ability to produce these primary artifacts. How do you, how's that? Did I work that example okay with the process? Yeah, I was just imagining actually you can, you can, the first person in the organization who's told to do this might be quite reflexive and they might say, yeah, but that way of measuring culture doesn't work. That's not really what culture is. And so they get told, okay, fine, well, you tell us a good measure of culture and just make sure you've got it in place. And so they look around and they find that, okay, even though they disagree with the idea of using Likert scale surveys to measure culture, that's the only thing they can do that's going to produce a useful outcome. And they might fight back about that and then get told, okay, so you've got the worst cult safety culture in the group then, because <laughs> everyone else could comply with the audit and you couldn't. 
And so next time around, they've worked out how to comply. They're still uncomfortable with it, but they're doing it. And next time around, that's now the routine. That's something they do every year is run the safety culture survey. And they get proud of the fact that their results are improving. And so they want to have the survey in place to show the improvement. Yeah, and then the extension of that is 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 the visible leadership visits, the behaviour observations, all the conversations, and all those other things that go along with that, and all the paperwork it produces, and then all this stuff that can be shown the following year. So, Drew, the the outcome is that that the performance has become auditable in a way that seems entirely natural to the people in the organisation. Like this, all becomes really natural. Like you know, here's the records for this, the records for that. And so the repetition of this audit trail creates an ever deeper ruts in the road. So every time you go through this cycle of generating this, this information, using it to judge performance, talking about it like that, and then moving on to the next cycle, it just basically just creates this stronger. I quite like deeper ruts in the road. I was going to try and come up with other words, but I think we all understand what that means. It just sort of self reinforces itself. And then the, the desire to, oh, sorry, Drew, the desire to take that to other aspects of the organization and repeat that process like safety culture or like diversity or sustainability uh, becomes even stronger. And one of the key points about these ruts is that they are, that, you know, originally there's a decoupling of values that people might fight back against the introduction of performance measures because they don't think that it quite captures really what the underlying thing is. But very quickly, the values of the audit take over from other values. And they, Power presents us like a few different mechanisms of this value transformation or value capture. Um, and part of it is in power shift. So the people within the organization who previously championed the, I'll say the true values of the organization. I know that's not a neutral term, but like the original values are often held by the professional service providers. So if you can think that this is a hospital then the people who really embody those values are the nurses and doctors. Uh, if you're thinking of a child services organization, it's the frontline people who are visiting people's houses and um, you're dealing with families, hold the real values and define the values of the organization. But they lose their autonomy and license to do that. And it gets replaced with power shifting to the systems instead of to those individuals. It's now the systems that do the measurement that define the values. And ultimately, that type of transformation in itself, it just reinforces those types of neoliberal market values. The very idea that things which can be, I mean, we've all heard it, you know, things that matter can be measured. Um, anything that can't be measured doesn't matter. You know, that, that, that logic is directly a market logic built around the belief that things that can be counted, things that fit within the audit system, things that can be defined as processes, processes that could be measured, that's what value is rather than other types of value. So, Drew, I think there's this example that you've got here, and I've got a real specific story about it, where something like diversity, really important for organisations, uh, really, really current and rightly so important issue for, for business. It's also a really sort of vague value as well. What exactly do we mean? But what we, we can't deal with uncertainty and vagueness in an organisation, so we try to create a set of processes where we can audit whether the process has been followed, which is far more definite than this idea of like improving the diversity. But then what happens is the idea of diversity gets kind of like redefined into whatever our processes say. So when they, when people talk maybe about diversity, they mean the processes and not anything else. So, so an example is an organization that really wants to increase its gender diversity in management, a really hard thing to audit, uh, you know, cause you can't audit the outcomes. You've got to actually have some, some processes and documents so 
made the decision, for example, that every single shortlist, uh, the last three person shortlist for any single job in the organization needed to have two females and one male in that last three person shortlist. And that was the process. And that was the process that got audited. And so it was really interesting to see that that process over time got really, really well followed, but the diversity of people appointed into positions didn't change. So the audit, the audits got better, the audit result got better and better and better and better over the two or three years that that was being implemented. But the actual outcome, the value that the organization was trying to create from that process uh, didn't actually change. Is that, a, is that true how you sort of see that playing out? Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, we, we've got almost the exact same thing happening at the moment in our university about work integrated learning. We start off with this really vague value, which is about getting graduates ready for work outside universities, which could, you know, in theory, every single thing we do could be getting people ready for life outside university. But there's a particular government initiative. They're going to set up measures. They're going to change our funding based on our ability to demonstrate work integrated learning. So we're having lots and lots of meetings, not about how to get our graduates ready for work or, you know, what sort of skills do they need? But how do we set up processes that can measure and report on integration of work integrated learning into our curriculum? So the entire logic is based around what we can audit rather than on what we think we can be doing. And there will be certain activities that we put in place because they're easy to create traces that we can easily match in that audit trail towards the government priorities. And nowhere will we be asking, is this good for our students? Because good for our students is not something that we can create a nice, easy trace for or link to any of the requirements or aggregate as measures across the university. So, Drew, there's this idea in this, pro there's this sort of theme in this process, if you like, that audits end up going from push to pull. So the first time someone is subject to a particular new type of audit, they be it becomes really resistant. People don't like these new checks and balances, these new, these getting asked questions about documents that they don't have going through a process which distracts them from what their core value producing work is for the organization. So they complain about why do we need to do all this extra stuff? All these systems don't help me do my work. They don't create value for the organization. It's overly simplistic and, and not really a, a good thing to do. So this is this sort of dispositional type resistance where we don't like it, but we, we can't push back against it. Like you can't suddenly just opt out and say, oh, you want to audit me next month, uh, I've decided that I don't have to be audited. So even though there might be this real underlying resistance to it, it doesn't seem to stop the initial auditing activity from happening. Uh, do you want to keep going and talk about the other side of the coin, David? Yeah, so then you've got this pull because um, what's interesting is people want to know they're doing a good job and people want to, want to you know, have clarity and simplicity and certainty over what the organisation wants them to do. So in the same way that people resist resist this need to produce all of this stuff, there's also this desire by people in organizations to make sense of their work by creating all of these primary documents so they can show people the things that they're doing. And so they like the idea of about having evidence of what we do and the value that it has. So getting a good audit result is a sort of value, a source of value for people in the contribution of their work. So again, Drew, you mentioned academics before. So even and myself not being a full-time academic, but someone who does take great joy in getting getting one of our papers cited. So we complain that citations aren't a great indication of good research, but it's always nice to see your, your, your citations going up. And David, I think you've done this with rooms full of people before is 
ask them whether they believe in LTIs and then ask them whether they collect and report LTIs. And you know, I think even people who think that LTIs are nonsense will still claim LTI improvements. Yeah, In absolutely. fact, literally, I think, think I might call out Sid Decker on this one um, as one of the most vocal advocates against things like lost time indicators. Still, when he had a project where the introduction of safety differently principles had improved the lost time indicators, wanted to include that as one of the outputs. Yeah, it's compelling. And it's compelling because it, 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 it fits exactly what we're talking about in this podcast here today. It's how it, it, it matches the representations that people have of the underlying, uh, the underlying value or outcome is trying to be created. So, Drew, initially this push is strong and this pull is weak. So, um, you've got to sort of, you, you've got to, so if you wanted to start doing safety culture audits, you'd really have to push hard into the organization to make that happen. But as the organization conducted those audits over time, the push gets weaker and the pull gets stronger. The resistance changes from not wanting to produce these traces, but then people being very strategic and deliberate about how they manage them or even add additional primary traces, which is to, to show even more, I don't know if compliance is the right word, value, more, more audit value that they've been able to create since the previous audit. So going beyond even the primary traces that the audit, auditors are looking for, because again, you know, people people the audit score itself is an outcome that's really really valuable to people inside the organization even if the underlying outcome that the organization is trying to deliver is not um is not changing and david i don't know what you think about this one but i, th I think this is part of what explains why people are so insistent on having new metrics for safety is people are so captured in this framework that even if they hate things like ltis they don't want to get rid of the same fundamental logic of measurement. They just want to replace LTIs with some safety two based metric that will slot into the exact same place in the organization. We just change our audit questions slightly to ask for a different type of metric. We aggregated in the same way, we reported in the same way, because even if we want to push back against the particular trace, we have completely bought into the logic of how we account and audit. Yeah, Drew, and we saw this in my research during my PhD that it didn't matter what the intention was coming from a board or a senior executive in terms of providing a direction or instruction for the organization around safety. It didn't matter what their intention was or what underlying outcome they were trying to create in the business. Every time that direction or instruction came down the hierarchy, it was always received as a compliance activity. So it was never, it was never received in a way that says, what's the underlying uh, outcome that is trying to be dri driven here. It's how can I report back to the board and the senior executive that this has been done? That was the, the, the only conversation like your conversation about work integrated learning earlier, Drew. And I think auditing is is one of those, like um, Power says, is you know the micro processual foundations of it inside companies means that you could drop anything into that cycle with the very best of intention about what outcomes you're trying to create. And this process will not create those outcomes for you. Do you want to talk about some sort of other interesting aspects of the paper that we probably won't have time to go into depth on, but we'll we'll sort of just mark out as signposts and then go on to the practical takeaways? Sure. I should flag that this is about half the paper that we've compressed into six bullet points, not because it's not good stuff in just as much depth as I think we've covered the main thing that we wanted to cover. And the rest of the paper is interesting, but makes some somewhat peripheral points. I think one of the key things that it says, though, is that this process of auditing doesn't just sort of like replicate creating those ruts in the road, but it also goes sideways. 
that once we've bought into the logic of auditing some things, then we've bought into the logic that everything needs to be audited. So when we have a new value or a new concern, whether it's like social impact of our work or psychological safety or employee well-being, then we end up creating those same structures and incentives that we already have with the existing things that we audit. We don't just like treat them as new topics outside of what we're currently auditing. We just expand the audits to cover them. Um, there's also a few like specific mechanisms that Power says apply to different organizations and explain why some organizations are quicker or slower to adopt the audit society framework. The first one he says is that pre-existing work practices make a difference. Some organizations are already very into creating traces of their work that make it really easy to slap an audit on top. And the example he gives there is pilot checklists. The pilots used checklists before they needed to get audited on those checklists. They just thought it was a good idea. And so if the organization's already doing lots of things that can easily be audited, then there's much less push when you start introducing audits. And there's much more pull because people are keen to demonstrate what they're already, do already doing. The second thing he mentions is just that the introduction of digital technology means that it's so much easier to create traces now. So there's some things that we would never previously have audited that we are now starting to audit, like customer satisfaction, just because it's so easy for them to just click on the app and give you five stars. Instantly, you've got a trace. Hey, if we've got a trace, we should be doing something with that. We end up building it into our performance and appraisal structures. David, jump in at any moment or I'll just keep going. No, I'll let you keep going. And then there's a few, uh, a few points I want to make before we jump into the takeaways. Next one is that some organizations are predisposed to love the idea of auditing because they're already needing to protect themselves. So if you're, they're worried about litigation or worried about being sued or worried about uh, regulatory action, then they might actually very welcome the idea of creating traces for self-protection. And so in something like medicine, there's much more pull than there was before because doctors see the direct value in having auditable traces of what they've told patients and whether they've properly got informed consent for things. And so they're much more receptive than they might otherwise be if they're in a highly litigious environment. And then the final one is that in some organizations, the shift towards audit gives power to particular people. So the people who operate the systems have the power. And if the people in the right spots are predisposed to seek that sort of power, then that's gonna really accelerate the process to the point where people might even use external events like an accident as reasons to introduce accountability through auditable processes to make a power grab through putting in place and now operating that system. And I think we see that with some of the things like including sexual harassment under the safety banner. That's like just a clear grab to bring a new topic under the systems to expand the power base of a particular organization. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. So well worth a read this paper. And I just want to, in case we haven't threaten the existence of anyone doing audits. I think to connect it back to our demonstrated safety in this in the safety workforce, the safety of work, like there's a reason that organizations do this. This is why these these processes like audit audits hang around. And there may always be a need to do this. But just a couple of points, Drew, maybe to be very seem very clear in my mind, and I'd be interested in your views about whether they are this clear, in that audits themselves are not improving underlying performance. So audits are a performative process, not an instrumental process. So the audit doesn't change the underlying thing that we are auditing. That's sort of point number one. Number two, they're not looking at outcomes or, or value creation in the underlying process. 
And there was a quote in this paper, Drew, that I thought was really good. That And, and I'll read this quote, that organisations have a tendency to emphasise methods rather than goals as an important source. And this is an important source of disorientation in all organisations. So this focus on the process and the, and the document as opposed to the organisational goal, this is a 1957 quote from an um, author called Selznick. So we're talking 65 years ago, said, oh, be careful not to focus on process rather than the underlying goal of your organisation. And the third one, Drew, is that as much as we might think there's that value of transparency and accountability and responsibility, that audits themselves are not providing open and transparent accounts. So, and this idea of transparency is known to be paradoxical and that audit practices themselves that are said to be very transparent, in fact, lead to, you know, this opacity and specialist control. We know the primary data sources, we can manage and manipulate the primary data sources. The audit process is anything but a transparency exercise. Now, I've probably been pretty direct with those three points, Drew, but that's sort of how I'm seeing the world now. Let me throw a couple of contradictory bombshells at you then, David. A couple of arguments in favour of audits that don't contradict your points, I think. The first one is that the displacement from goals to methods, I think, is a genuinely adaptive behaviour in some circumstances. If you're in a job with very, very high uncertainty and very, very low control over outcomes, then the ability to define the parameters of your work in terms of process is important for self-survival. So I'm thinking there of people like uh, care workers dealing with children at risk. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is know that you have followed the process because you can't protect everyone. Sometimes people are going to be put into situations where they turn out to be at more risk than you realised. Sometimes you're going to take kids away from their parents and you'll never know whether that was necessary or justified or not you'll never have that uncertainty resolved. And so the ability to say, well, the best I can do is follow a process that we've all agreed on, that's actually important for protection. And I would argue that that applies to a lot of safety work. We've cited Wastel's, I know it's one of your favourite papers, Drew, Wastel's uh, The Fetish of Technique Methodology as a Social Defence. And we may even do a podcast about that. I'll humour you one day and we'll, we'll do a podcast about it because, you know, whether you're trying to, whether you're trying to implement an IT project or, or manage you know, accidents. I think that idea that, you know, if you can't control the outcome, you can be judged against the process that you followed. Yep. And the second one is I'd say that adopting the worldview that comes with audits is adaptive for organisations because even though this does come up from the bottom up, it is still useful for aligning an organisation with other organisations that think the same way. Um, you're an organisation that didn't need audits for its own sake, might end up adopting them and choosing to adopt that same internal mindset and structure so that they could talk the same language as their clients and partners. Um, and I don't think that that is maladaptive for a single organisation, even as all of society goes to hell in a handbasket. It makes sense, still makes sense for the organisation to go along with it rather than fighting against the tide. Awesome, Drew. So let's let's move on to some practical takeaways. I might sort of lean on you a little bit here. So, you know, this... This paper lays out, you know, very much a descriptive theory and Power's done a great job of laying out kind of like, you know, you, you, you nod and, you, you know, on the way through this paper. So, but it's very much a descriptive theory, you know, it describes the way that the world is and it makes, it also makes this audit society seem inevitable, both outside and inside of an organisation. And Drew, it doesn't really tell us what to do about it. Or in fact, if 
we should do anything about it. So, Drew, what are your sort of practical takeaways and, and advice that um, you, you do in relation to this um, inevitability of auditing and perhaps the distraction of the core underlying value we're trying to create? David, one that I really forgot to put on this list that I think is important is don't hang around sociologists for too long. It, it is a genuine path to existential despair once you understand just the inevitability of some of the mechanisms that create dysfunction. And we see this with our own social science students is that, you know, understanding exactly how social problems work doesn't make you feel good about yourself or hopeful for the future. So maybe don't read too much of this stuff unless you particularly find it interesting. I have a social theory, social science shelf on my bookshelf. I might steer away from it for a while. I did get lost a little bit during the PhD on some of that theory. On a more hopeful idea, once you understand some of these mechanisms, that does empower you to be reflexive. So if you can see it working, your simple understanding that it is going on around you gives you space to see where there is freedom. And so one of the big ones is that even inside an audit framework, there's a lot of choice about what sort of primary traces are produced. And so you can say, okay, look, it's inevitable that any activity that we do has to produce an auditable record. That doesn't mean it has to be a form. That doesn't mean it has to be written down. That doesn't mean it has to be a signature there can be other ways of producing traces that align much better with work. And if we can design our activities to meet the needs both of the audits and of the people involved rather than just blindly what's most auditable, I think we can make a genuine difference for ourselves and for other people. Uh, secondly, similarly, is that when you see this happening, you realise that maybe be a bit careful what you wished for in terms of what counts as safety. So it might seem well-intentioned to deal with things like mental health and psychological safety and well-being and sexual harassment under the same systems as safety. But before you get too ambitious, remember that it is fairly inevitable that those will experience the same capture and value decoupling that happens with your other systems. And so ask yourself whether you want that to happen. Now, there may be for some of those things that, yes, we think that that would be a genuine improvement. But for others, we may in fact lose the original value. And I think safety climate's a great example. The whole point of safety climate was meant to be a balance at more systematic systems focused and instrumental ways of thinking about safety. Once we let safety climate become captured in that same system, we lose everything that safety climate brings to the table. So we ought to keep those things quite separate in how we think about and manage them. And I very much think that if we care about things like employee mental health, that bringing it under the same safety systems could seriously compromise the values that we're trying to preserve and protect. Andrew, finally, I think this may not strictly be about audits itself. So there's, there's things like certifications and standards and other processes like contractor pre-qualification and incident investigation, uh, even risk management. And lots of non-audit activities can have the same underlying sort of value decoupling and and logic in that you know every that the process becomes maybe more important and and decoupled from the outcome we're trying to create. We see that with with a lot of those safety practices. And again, I just echo your first takeaway: uh, knowing that this is this is happening and and being strategic about that as a as a safety leader or as an organisational leader means that you can work within that inevitable cycle that's going to play out and and even find ways to use that cycle maybe to more closely couple that cycle to the underlying um, outcome you're trying to deliver or work with. So David, this has been one of our longer episodes and the paper is a bit of a 
long read. But I, I think it's one of the ones where I've actually learned quite a lot from reading and thinking about the paper. And I hope our listeners have found a lot to think about and discuss with us further. Because I, I don't want to just sort of like do this episode and have it just fall away again. I'd love to have some more discussion with anyone who has either read the paper or has some thoughts about maybe how these processes work for various things and particularly how they apply to expanding the scope of safety work in our organisations. Yeah, thanks, Drew. I'd, I'd love to as well and, and very happy. With, I think it's probably about now. So thanks for hanging in there if you if you have made it all the way through. And uh, But I think it's taken us 82 episodes, Drew, to get to this topic of auditing. And I think it was important that we, like I suppose we, we took our safety clutter episode seriously for episode 80. So this one deserves the same sort of discussion because it's such a central play sense of central role in not just safety, but organisational life. So the question that we asked this week was, why do we audit so much? And for once, I think we have quite a very clear answer to that. Power explains pretty convincingly that we audit because every time we audit, it creates the organisational conditions that make us want to keep auditing. All right. So that's it for this week. We hope that you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety work in your own organisation. If you want to contribute to our audit process and give us five stars on whatever podcast uh, app you're listening to this, or maybe even a comment, uh, please do that and send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes, just like this one, to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 